Ataturk's legacy is that he single-handedly first saved and then transformed the country by the sheer force of his will. He forced Turkey to modernize. He forced the people to give up Islamic culture and the Islamic way of life. He single-handedly built, out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, a modern, secular, powerful and prosperous Turkey. A Turkey for the Turks. Now, Mohandas Gandhi strongly and wholeheartedly supported the Khilafat movement. He grew personally close to the Khilafat leaders. He exhorted people, the people of India, to support the Khilafat movement. Gandhi's championing of the Khilafat movement unified and brought together Indian Muslims from across the nation. It unified them in service of a foreign cause that had nothing to do with India's freedom movement. It unified them in allegiance to a foreign ruler, an Islamic system of governance and Sharia law. It legitimized the idea that Indian Muslims owe allegiance elsewhere and have interests that do not align with India's. It planted the idea of otherhood, of separateness, that their interests and causes and their destinies were separate from those of India's non-Muslims. Before I begin, I would like to thank Stajan Foundation for inviting me here to give this talk. So, I'm going to speak about the Turkish origins of India's partition. So this is a story about India, but it begins a long time ago in a land that's very far away. And this is the land of the modern nation of Turkey. So in this map, we can see where Turkey is located in the context of Asia and Europe. It's approximately 2000 kilometers from the western borders of India. And to the west of Turkey, you have Europe. To the right of Turkey, you have Asia. And uh, to the north, you have the Caucasus region. And to the south, you have the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So Turkey shares borders with uh, Greece and Bulgaria. It also shares borders with Georgia, Armenia. And in Asia, Turkey shares borders with Syria, Iraq and Iran. Now, Turkey straddles an imaginary line between Europe and Asia. 97% of Turkey is located in the peninsula of Anatolia, which lies in Asia. And 3% of Turkey on the other side is in Europe, in the Balkan Peninsula. Now, the European and Asiatic portions of Turkey are divided, they are separated by two narrow passages of sea, which are the Straits of Bosphorus and the Straits of the Dardanelles. But Turkey occupies a key strategic transcontinental location between Europe and Asia. And as a result, over the millennia, it has been conquered and ruled by a who's who of ancient civilizations. So these included the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Mitanni, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, various European crusaders, and the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Now, among these, the most significant were the Greeks, who have had a presence in Anatolia since around 2000 BC, which is, which is around almost like 4000 years before now. The Greek writer Herodotus, who is considered among the Western world to be the father of history, was born in Anatolia. And the ruins of the, of the ancient city of Troy, 
are also located in Anatolia. Now, in 667 BCE, the Greeks founded a city called Byzantion or Byzantium on the western bank of the Bosphorus Strait. Anatolia became part of the expanding Roman Empire sometime after 200 BCE. And 500 years later, when the Western Roman Empire was in terminal decline, Byzant Byzant the Byzantine Empire started prospering. So the Western Roman Empire fell in around the 5th century CE. And millions of people continued to live in the Roman Empire in the East up to the Middle Ages. This Byzantine Empire began around 330 CE when the Emperor Constantine rebuilt and refounded the ancient city of Byzantium and he named the city as New Rome. So Constantine was the first emperor to officially adopt Christianity as his official state religion which would have far-reaching consequences. So the Eastern Roman Empire came to be known as the Byzantine Empire based on the capital city's old name and after this Emperor Constantine's death the city came to be known as Constantinople, the city of Constantine. The Byzantine Empire went on to have a very long, interesting and tumultuous history. And finally, in, 15, in 1453, the Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed the Conqueror, captured Constantinople and brought a conclusive end to the Byzantine Empire. When the Byzantine Empire fell, its inhabitants were mostly Christians. They were of Greek, Ro Romanian, uh, Roman, Armenian and uh, Georgian ethnicity. And there were lots of Jews as well. Now, one of the most significant events of the first millennium of after, after the birth of Christ was the emergence of Islam as a driving force of conquest. After the death of the Prophet Muhammad in uh, 632 CE, an institution called the Caliphate was founded. It is called Khilafah in Arabic. The Caliphate is an Islamic state under the leadership of a ruler called the Caliph. The Caliph is considered to be the supreme religious leader and of the Muslims and the religious successor of the Prophet Muhammad. He is regarded as the defender of Islam and the supreme leader of the Islamic Ummah which is the worldwide Islamic community. The first caliphate called the Rashidun Caliphate was established immediately after Muhammad's death in 632 CE. The four Rashidun Caliphs are called the Orthodox Caliphs because they were selected from the circle of friends of the Prophet Muhammad and they ruled from Arabia. So the Rashidun Caliphate lasted from 632 CE to 661 CE and these are the four Rashidun Caliphs, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman and Ali. So the Rashidun Caliphate was characterized by a 25-year period of rapid military expansion. By the 650s, the Caliphate, in addition to the Arabian Peninsula, had subjugated West Asia, the Transcaucasus region, which is to the north of the region of Turkey. It had conquered parts of North Africa from Egypt up to Tunisia. It had conquered the entire Iranian plateau and it had 
even conquered, conquered some parts of ancient India, including Afghanistan and some parts of Central Asia in the east. The second caliphate is the Umayyad Caliphate. It ruled from Damascus in Syria between 661 CE and 750 CE. The Umayyads continued the Muslim conquests, incorporating more of Central Asia, Sindh, Northwest Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, which is today Spain, all of these parts into the Muslim world. At its greatest extent, the Umayyad Caliphate covered more than 11 million square kilometers and it had more than 33 million subjects among its population, which makes it one of the world's largest empire in history, both in terms of area and the proportion of the world's population. The third caliphate is the Abbasid Caliphate. It ruled from Baghdad from 750 CE to 1258 CE. During the Abbasid Caliphate, most of India, much of India fell to the Islamic invasions. Those Islamic invasions were not part of the Caliphate, they, were, they came from the north. So in this period, Muslim scholars began to discover Indian works of mathematics, science, art, etc. These were translated from Sanskrit into Arabic. And as a result, the Islamic world discovered concepts such as toxicology, pharmacology, surgery, astronomy, the decimal system, algebra and trigonometry. And for a few centuries, while India fell into decline, the Islamic world enjoyed a golden age when mathematics, science and astronomy prospered and flourished. This golden age of Islam came to an abrupt halt in 1258 CE when the Mongol Empire captured, sacked and depopulated the city of Baghdad and nearly obliterated the Islamic world. So by the time some of that knowledge which, these, which the Islamic world acquired from India had made its way to the West, to Europe and very soon Europe's own golden age, the scientific revolution began approximately 500 years before today. After the Mongol conquest of Baghdad, the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt claimed the title of Caliph and declared the re-establishment of the Caliphate in Cairo. So the Mamluk Caliphate had rather shrunk and it ruled between six, uh, 1261 CE and 1571 CE, 1517 CE. And it came to an end when the Ottoman Sultan Selim I conquered Egypt and made it part of the Ottoman Empire. So the fifth and the final caliphate is the Ottoman Caliphate, which ruled out of Constantinople from 1517 CE to 1924 CE in the previous century. Now during the second and the third caliphates, that is the Umayyad Caliphate and the Abbasid Caliphate, large parts of Central Asia began to be incorporated into the Islamic world. And this is when Islam first came into contact with the Turkic people. That's what they look like, Central Asian nomads. 
So the earliest records of the Turkic people go, to, go back to around 200 BCE when they were present in Eastern Central Asia and Siberia in the north of Asia. The Turkic people originally practiced a religion called Tengriism. So Tengriism is a Central Asian religion characterized by animism, shamanism, ancestor worship and polytheism. Animism is the be belief that all objects, all places, all creatures possess, uh, possess a distinct spiritual essence. And shamanism involves religious practitioners called shamans who interact with the spirit world. And later on, the Turks also incorporated elements of Buddhism in their religious practices. So to make a long story short, as a result of the Islamic uh, expansion into Central Asia, the various Turkic tribes ended up converting to Islam. And this, bega this became the starting point of an age of Turkic expansion and conquest. So soon after that, Northern India came to be invaded, conquered and ruled by three successive Turkic dynasties. These were the Mamluk dynasty from 1206 to 1290. Its founder was Kutubuddin Aybak. The Khilji dynasty, 1290 to 1320. One of its most prominent rulers was Alauddin Khilji. And the Tughlaq dynasty from 1320 to 1413. Muhammad bin Tughlaq is quite famous among this dynasty. So these were relatively short-lived dynasties and their rule was marked with massacres, torture, cruelty, forcible conversions to Islam and rebellions. The Islamic invader Timur, also known as Taimur in India, was of Turkic ethnicity. He is infamous for massacring over a hundred thousand people in just one day in 1398, right here in Delhi. Timur is estimated to have massacred a total of more than 17 million people over the course of his career in India, in Iran, in Anatolia, in the Caucasus and the Middle East. Now, in the 13th century, the Mongol Empire, led by Genghis Khan and his descendants, rampaged across Asia and Europe and smashed every king, country and empire that stood in, in its way. So the Turks of Central Asia fled for their lives in all directions. Among them was a Turkic tribe led by a man called Suleiman Shah. So for centuries they had uh, pitched th their tents among, uh, along the shores and on the edge of the Gobi Desert, which is north of China, present-day China. But now they found the Mongol conquerors pressing into them, coming from the north and threatening their lives. So Suleiman Shah fled south and uh, came via Armenia into Anatolia. And that's where that's the first presence of the Turks in the region which is now known as Turkey. So Suleiman died and his son Ertugrul ruled in his stead. And after him came Osman after whom the Ottoman Empire is named. And from father to son, 10 generations of Ottoman Sultans came. They followed each other. They were often vicious and brutal, often unjust and bestial, but they were rulers, leaders of men and generals. They found in front of them a world of dying empires, 
the decayed Seljuk Empire, the worn-out Arab Empire of Baghdad, and uh, the corrupt Byzantine Empire. These they smashed and conquered. Within 300 years of the death of Suleiman Shah, his tenth descendant, Suleiman the Magnificent, the lawgiver, ruled an immense empire that stretched across three continents, from Albania to the Adriatic coast and to the Persian frontier and from Egypt to the Caucasus. Hungary and the Crimea, the Crimea is up north, north of the Black Sea. So Hungary and Crimea were his vassals. The kings of Europe came to him with gifts, asking for help in their quarrels. His armies stood across the road to the east, which means that the road to India was cut off. And his fleet, his fleet sailed supreme in the entire Mediterranean region. North Africa was beholden to him and also Constantinople was his. So, so Suleiman the Magnificent made one big bid at world domination. He hammered on the gates of Vienna and seized the Christian world by the throat. He failed and Vienna survived. Suleiman the Magnificent died in 1566 and the Ottoman Empire reached its greatest territorial extent during the, during the rule of Sultan Mehmed IV around 1683 CE. Now, during this time, a curious thing happened. The original Turkish invaders looked like proper Central Asian nomads. But a couple of centuries later, their descendants looked more like the local people of Anatolia and the Balkans. So how did that happen? So according to a Turkic custom that stretches back to the centuries, back to the day of when there were nomads in Central Asia. When a boy reaches the cusp of adulthood, he is required to prove his bravery and valor. One of the ways of doing this is for him to sneak into the camp of another tribe, capture a girl of marriageable age, fight off her father, brothers, relatives if required, bring her back to his camp and take her as his wife. This ancient Turkic custom is called bride kidnapping. It is still widely practiced in the Central Asian republics of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan. It is also practiced in the Caucasus region even today. These places, Dagestan, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Chechnya and similar customs are practiced wherever you have people of Turkic and even Islamic uh, demographics, such as Cyprus, but also Pakistan. So when these Central Asian Turkic nomads conquered Anatolia, they found themselves in a prosperous, fertile, well-populated land. And there was no shortage of women to kidnap as brides. It wasn't even hard to kidnap the women, women folk of a subjugated and conquered people. And so in Anatolia, in Greece, in the Balkans and other conquered territories, the Turks went on a kidnapping spree. They implemented a policy of systematically abducting, converting and marrying local girls and women. And as a result of that, 
over the course of a few generations, the Turks went from looking like Central Asian nomads to Europeans. Now, Ottoman rule was brutal. It was characterized by massacres, by ethnic cleansing, by systematic bride kidnapping, by large-scale conversions to Islam, the imposition of Sharia law, and the imposition of jizya tax on non-Muslims. Another distinctive Ottoman practice was called the blood tax. This was a practice in which the Ottoman Empire sent military officers to take to take Christian boys ages 8 and above from their families in Eastern and Southeastern Europe in order that they be raised to serve the state. So this tax of sons was imposed only on the Christian subjects of the empire in the villages of the Balkans and Anatolia. The boys were converted and indoctrinated into Islam with the primary objective of training them for the military or the civil service of the empire. And the most capable among them were enlisted in elite infantry units called the Janissaries that formed the Ottoman Sultan's uh, household troop and bodyguards. Now, after Suleiman the Magnificent's death, his son, Salim II, became Sultan. And with Salim II came corruption. The 1911 Britannica Encyclopedia article on Salim II remarks that he was the first Sultan entirely devoid of military virtues and willing to abandon all power to his ministers, provided that he was left free to pursue his orgies and debaucheries. So after Salim II, with only one exception, there came 27 Sultans, each more degenerate than the last. The palace harem and the eunuchs took control of the empire. So without leaders, the Turks went the way of all flesh. The, the steel fiber went out of them. Their energy, their resilience, their vitality all disappeared. They became lazy, apathetic and corrupt. And as a consequence of that, their long oppressed subject people revolted against them. Greece. Serbia and Bulgaria declared their independence. And within 300 years of the dying of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Empire lay bankrupt, decrepit and dying. So it was around this time in the mid to late 18th, 19th century that the Ottoman Empire came to be called the thick man of Europe. Convinced that the Ottoman Empire must break up, the European powers rushed in, eager to grab and annex whatever they could and wherever they dared. So, the, so Russia seized the Crimea and the Caucasus and Russia also clay, laid, laid, laid claims to Constantinople and the road which went to the Mediterranean Sea. France captured Syria and Tunisia. Each England occupied Egypt and Cyprus and the new and expanding Gen Germany championed the Ottoman Sultan, the Khalif, Abdul Hamid, against the rest of Europe. His intention was obviously to annex his territories as soon as the, as the other powers were beaten off. So all these great powerful European nations claimed special rights and privileges. 
and greedy as their meal as for is like vultures this they, they set waiting for the they set waiting for the end they will all, they were all afraid of each other and they were all anticipating a great war which indeed did happen soon enough but none of them at this point dared to rush in and so the dying ottoman empire lived on and the sultan abdul hamid from his palace on the bosphorus cunningly played all these powers one against the other in 1877 russia invaded declared war and advanced up to to within 10 miles of constantinople but the rest of europe warned russia not to proceed any further so four years later after the invasion by russia in 1881 there was born in the town of thessaloniki which is now in greece there was born of a turk named ali riza and of zubeda his wife a boy whom they named mustafa so ali riza was a timber dealer and a former government employee and uh, zubeda came from a long established family of albanian stock now ali riza died when uh, mustafa was 7 years old so mustafa grew up in fairly modest circumstances and had five siblings only one of which survived childhood it was a sister after the death of the father the family moved to the countryside with to live with one of mustafa's uncles and uh, mustafa did not attend school regularly until he moved back to thessaloniki at the age of nearly 10 and he wasn't there for long he dropped out of school again but at the age of around 15 he applied to a middle school was accepted and graduated in 1895 as one of the top students this is where his mathematics teacher gave him the surname kamal in praise of his skills kamal means perfection in arabic in 1889 the first armenian massacres took place in turkey followed by others in 1894 1896 1915 and 1920 which ended in the complete disappearance of the armenians from turkey After graduation Mustafa attended cadet school in Macedonia. In 1899 he moved to Constantinople, the capital of the empire, and became an officer in the military academy over there. In 1908 as an army chief of staff he supported the young Turk rebellion which deposed the sultan and restored a constitutional government. In 1911 and 1912 he fought as a major in the Italian-Turkish war. In 1912 Greece, Serbia, Montenegro and Bulgaria formed an alliance and attacked the Ottoman Empire. This was the first Balkan war and Mustafa Kemal fought in it as well. In 1914 Turkey took its obsolescent army into the first world war as an ally of germany in february 1915 a large british naval fleet comprising battleships destroyers and transport fleet uh, transport ships entered the strait of the dardanelles their plan conceived by winston churchill was to enter the narrow strait smashed the ottoman defensive forces using the enormous firepower of their battleships 
land a large occupation force of about 80,000 soldiers and take Constantinople. At this time, Mustafa Kemal was an unknown officer. He commanded a feeble, ill-equipped and outmatched Turkish division at the Gallipoli Peninsula. Yet his uh, brilliant strategy and ferocious personal leadership changed the course of the battle and the war. Day after day, week after week, month after month, his forces beat back the British, Indian, French, Australian and New Zealand troops time after time and fought them to a vicious and brutal stalemate. After 10 months, the British signaled defeat and sailed back, leaving behind a new hero in Turkey. Mustafa Kemal gained worldwide acclaim and prestige for his role in saving Turkey. But yet, just one victory and one great general was not enough for Turkey. The world war was lost and the end of this war in, 18, in 1918 brought with it the end of the old Ottoman Empire. In one of the suburbs of Paris, Sèvres, the Ottoman Empire was dismembered. Its largest chunks were handed over to the British and the French. Other valuable possessions were assigned to the, to the Italians and the Greeks. Constantinople and the Straits were internationalized. Constantinople was occupied by British and French troops. And uh, the parts of the former Ottoman Empire inhabited by Arabs were placed under great power tutelage. Other former Turkish possessions like uh, Armenia and Kurdistan were to gain independence. Under the Treaty of Sèvres, the Turks were cut off not only from the Straits but also from the Mediterranean Sea. All they were given was a small region in the highlands of Anatolia. The Caliph, eager to retain his power, his title and his privileges, extended his full cooperation to the British, to the occupiers. He ordered the Turkish army to stamp out all opposition to the foreign occupation. He drew upon his authority as the leader of the Islamic world and called upon his subjects to stand by the Caliph and the throne. Priests throughout Turkey repeated his message and exhorted the people to support the Caliph. So many towns and uh, villages rose up in support of the Caliph and others rose up against the occupation. So what, we have, what, what happened was the town was divided against town, family against family, father against son, brother against brother. And uh, from, from end to end, Turkey was drawn, was torn in the hideous nightmare of civil war. Meanwhile, Greece prepared for a new invasion of Turkey, confident that the allied armies would not prevent it from doing so. And on May 5th, 1919, the Greeks landed their troops on the shores of Anatolia. At this time, when this happened, Mustafa Kemal was in the town of Ankara in Anatolia. He organized a Turkish liberation movement and raised a free Turkish army. His goal was to create a modern Turkish Republic exclusively for the Turkish people. And he was constantly in danger of being 
captured and executed by the Caliph's forces. Mustafa Kemal quickly gathered the troops of an occupied Turkey and went to war with Greece. The war with the Greeks lasted three years, from 1919 to 1922. This was a war of extermination, atrocious and no mercy was asked or given. In September 1922, the Greeks were driven back to the Aegean Sea. Thousands of Greeks poured into the town of Smyrna on the western shore of Anatolia. They were fleeing from Mustafa Kemal's armies. So offshore allied ships uh, stood by and watched while Mustafa Kemal's forces entered the city. And then they took vengeance. Brutal massacres were committed. Unspeakable atrocities were, were committed. And then the city was burned. The final atrocity of the Great War. The final atrocity that ended the war. The outcome of the Great Fire of Smyrna was the complete exodus of the Greek and Armenian population of the city to Greece. So that was the end of the war. After winning the war, Mustafa Kemal removed his uniform, never to, never to wear it again. He was given the title of Ghazi, which means Holy Warrior. And he was granted dictatorial powers by the elected National Assembly. The foreign occupation forces were evacuated from Constantinople and Caliph Mehmed VI, whose family had reigned over Turkey for seven centuries, feared for his life and went into exile as crowds cheered his going. His going. The war ended with a compulsory population exchange between Greece and Turkey based on religious identity. This resulted in a near complete expulsion of Christians from Turkey and a similar expulsion of Muslims from Greece. In 1914, non-Muslims made up more than 19% of Turkey's population. By, by 1927, they were only 2.5% of Turkey's population. And in 2005, this figure had dropped to just 0.2%. Ataturk's dream of a Turkish Republic exclusively for the Turkish people came true. In 1924, the Ottoman Caliphate was abolished. So as the first president of the Turkish Republic, Mustafa Kemal kept his limitless wartime powers and his command of the army. He renamed Constantinople to Istanbul and he made Ankara, the capital of Turkey. He established Turkey as a truly secular republic. He abolished the use of the Arabic script in Turkey and he adopted the Latin script instead. Instead of Friday, which is the day sacred to Islam, he proclaimed the Western Sunday as the official day of rest. He banned the burqa and the hijab. He abolished polygamy. He gave women equal rights under the law and opened, and opened all trades and professions to, to, to women. He ordered Turkey's citizens, men as well as women, to adopt Western clothes and Western-style family names. He himself accepted the title of Ataturk, which means father of the Turks. Ataturk uh, 
adopted six young orphan girls. One of his adoptive daughters went on to become the world's first female fighter pilot. In 1938, Ataturk died at the age of 58. He spent 13 years of his life in active warfare fighting for Turkey. After that, for 15 years till his death, he was Turkey's first president and absolute ruler. Ataturk's legacy is that he single-handedly first saved and then transformed the country by the sheer force of his will. He forced Turkey to modernize. He forced the people to give up Islamic culture and the Islamic way of life. He single-handedly built out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire a modern, secular, powerful and prosperous Turkey. A Turkey for the Turks. So now our story moves eastwards to India. In 1915, about 21, after about 21 years in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi sailed to India. And upon arriving, he joined the Indian National Congress. He quickly became an enormously influential, powerful and popular leader. Now, in 1919, as we saw, the Ottoman Caliph's position was greatly weakened and made ineffectual by Mustafa Kemal's Turkish liberation movement. This raised the very real possibility that the Caliphate could be abolished. Now, these events were happening in a far-off country, 2,000 kilometers away from India. They had nothing to do with India or with India's freedom movement. No one in India even knew about these things. Except for India's uh, British-educated, English-speaking elite. So, in 1919, several of these British-educated Indian Muslim leaders formed the All India Khilafat Committee and launched what was what came to be known as the Khilafat Movement. They included people such as Muhammad Ali Jauhar, his brother Shaukat Ali, Abul Kalam Azad and Mukhtar Ahmed Ansari, who happens to be former Vice President Hamid Ansari's grand-uncle. They aimed to build political unity among Indian Muslims and use that influence to protect the Caliphate. They also founded the Jamia Millia Islamia in 1920 to promote independent education and unity for Indian Muslims. Now, Mohandas Gandhi strongly and wholeheartedly supported the Khilafat movement. He grew personally close to the Khilafat leaders. He exhorted people, the people of India, to support the Khilafat movement. Now a question, how many of you have Twitter accounts? Please raise your hands. So quite a few. Right. So the average Twitter user, I would say, would have about a couple of hundred followers, approximately. Now everybody who is on Twitter has strong opinions and uh, passionate beliefs about various things, about politics especially. And they tweet, tweet their views and uh, opinions passionately. The problem though for the average Twitter user is that they don't have much uh, traction. Their views and opinions don't reach a big or a wider audience because only a handful of people follow them. Now, let's say that uh, you have a Twitter account which has 100 followers and you tweet all the time, but you don't get very much interaction. Now, what if an influencer, a, a, a big Twitter account with, say, a million followers, 
were to follow you and start retweeting your tweets, so what would happen then? So in that case, what will happen is that you will get thousands of new followers overnight and uh, your followers will keep growing as this influencer keeps retweeting your, your, your tweets. The number of people interacting with you will grow exponentially. You will start connecting with an entire community of like-minded people and more and more people will join that community. And pretty soon you will find that you no longer need the momentum of the retweets of that big influencer to influence other, others. So essentially what happens is that you become an influ influencer yourself and your ideas, opinions and your voice gains traction. It gains currency. Your opinions gain currency. Now imagine that uh, Twitter existed in 1919 and everybody had Twitter accounts. Huh? So if that were true, then who would have the biggest Twitter account? Mahatma Gandhi. Because he was the most influential and uh, popular leader of the time. Not just India, but worldwide. So let's say he has a hundred million followers. It's not too far-fetched. He was very, pop very popular and very influential. And these obscure and unknown Khilafat leaders, they would have just a handful of Twitter followers, right? Thousand, two thousand, five thousand. So that's not nearly enough to build any kind of traction. Now, what if Gandhi followed the Khilafat leader's Twitter account and began retweeting their tweets and opinions regularly, daily? So what will happen is that these Khilafat leaders would quickly become powerful influencers themselves. They would gain a big following themselves and soon they would not need Gandhi's help anymore to build their following and uh, pursue their political agenda. So this thought experiment illustrates the effect that Gandhi's championing of the Khilafat movement had in 1919 or 1920. It gave enormous publicity to this cause, to, this, to an obscure movement in support of a foreign cause, a movement that was irrelevant to India and indifferent to the cause of India's independence. Nobody in India knew about the movement or the cause. Gandhi gave it importance and brought it right into the national center stage. So Gandhi's championing of the Khilafat movement unified and brought together Indian Muslims from across the nation. It unified them in service of a foreign cause that had nothing to do with India's freedom movement. It unified them in allegiance to a foreign ruler, an Islamic system of governance and Sharia law. It legitimized the idea that Indian Muslims owe allegiance elsewhere and have interests that do not align with India's. It planted the idea of otherhood, of separateness, that their interests and causes and their destinies were separate from those of India's non-Muslims. Gandhi's championing of the Khilafat movement also led to millions of Hindus and Sikhs and others participating in the, in the movement. So the, the impression was that the word Khilafat has something to do with the Arabic word Khilaf, which means opposition. It means dissent. That word obviously, as we know, it's quite, quite widely used in Hindi. And if I'm not mistaken, this false notion was also taught in India's history textbooks after independence. That Khilafat movement was, an, was a movement against the British, a movement to oppose the British. So what happened was that millions of Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists, Jains and others took part in the Khilafat movement. Whereas the actual Arabic word is Mukhalfa, but then this was popularized as, as opposition to I see. Okay, right. So, 
so what happened was that millions of Hindus and Sikhs and others, they took part in the Khilafat movement in the belief that it was about opposing the British, when in reality they were agitating in favor of restoring an Islamic system of governance and Sharia law. In 1922, the Khilafat movement's leaders criticized Gandhi's commitment to non-violence and broke their ties with him. And after 1924, when Ataturk abolished the Caliphate, interest in the movement faded away. But however, the Khilafat movement had a powerful cascading effect on the Indian freedom struggle. It became the catalyst for the demand for an Islamic Pakistan separate from India. Its principal leaders, the Ali brothers, joined the Muslim League and they went on to play a major role in the growth of the Muslim League's popular appeal and the subsequent Pakistan movement, which culminated in the partition of India. Now, curiously enough, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was highly critical of Gandhi's support to the Khilafat movement. He saw it as an endorsement of religious fanaticism. Jinnah was a member of the Indian National Congress since 1906. He was a member of the so-called moderate group in the Congress, which favored Hindu-Muslim unity in achieving self-government. Jinnah even opposed the formation of the All India Muslim League in 1906. At that time, he said that the principle of separate electorates for Hindus and Muslims was dividing the nation against itself. So these were the views of Jinnah. Now Jinnah was a prominent Congress leader during the decade of the First World War. He led a, he led a Congress de delegation to London in 1914. By 1920, Gandhi, whose methods and policies Jinnah strongly disagreed with, had taken over the Congress leadership and Jinnah found himself marginalized. Disillusioned and frustrated, he resigned from the Congress that year. He spent much of the next 14 years in political wilderness, spending much of the time in England. In 1932, Jinnah read Ataturk's biography. This had a profound effect on Jinnah. He became obsessed with Ataturk for a while. It was all that he talked about, even at home, even to his daughter Dina, who was about 13 years old at the time. Ataturk's life story gave Jinnah a new purpose in life. Jinnah returned to India in 1934 and set out to work for a separate homeland for India's Muslims, using Ataturk's career and actions as a template. So when the British eventually partitioned India, the compulsory population exchange between Greece and Turkey was replicated in a one-sided way in the form of Pakistan's expulsion and eradication of its Hindu and Sikh population. Events such as the Armenian genocide and the burning of the city of Smyrna were replicated in the violence and terror that Jinnah unleashed during the so-called Direct Action Day and also in the unspeakable violence and atrocities perpetrated during partition. Those tactics were seen again in the Kashmir Valley in 1989, 
in the genocide and occupation of the Kashmiri Pandits. And customs such as bride kidnapping that we spoke about earlier are still rampant in Pakistan and they are used exclusively on young Hindu girls. Jinnah died in 1948. This is his mausoleum. This is Ataturk's mausoleum. So Jinnah was inspired by Ataturk in life and in death, in his death. Now, let's be realistic. Jinnah was no Ataturk. Ataturk was an absolute colossus of a man. He was a truly great military commander and an equally great reformer of his country. Jinnah had no comparable qualities. Jinnah, however, was fortunate that his ambitions aligned perfectly well with the British plan to partition India. So the credit for India's partition does not go to Jinnah. It goes to the British and the Indians who helped them. Now the theme of this talk is to show how a sequence of events that was set, that were set in motion in Turkey a long time ago eventually ended up culminating in India's partition. The other theme of this talk is that since we have covered the careers of Ataturk and Gandhi in some detail, these are two extremely different leaders who are both regarded as the fathers of their nation. Why not compare and contrast them and see what that throws up? So we can do that by asking the following questions. Was Gandhi a good leader? Was he a strong leader? Was he successful was he, or was he a bad leader, a poor leader, a weak leader? Did he fail as a leader? And what about Ataturk? Was he a good leader? Was he a strong leader? Was he successful or was he a bad leader? So how do we determine this answer? Do we go by gut feeling or is there a more rigorous way of evaluating a leader's leadership qualities? So what if we ask this question instead? As a leader, what was Gandhi's constituency? In other words, whom did Gandhi represent as a leader? Whom did he serve? So this question reveals two things. First, the essence of leadership is service. And second, one cannot be a leader without having a constituency. So what's a constituency? It's a finite set of people whose interests a leader protects and promotes. It's a finite set of people whom the leader represents and serves. So the essence of leadership is service, the service of one's constituency. A leader's constituency is always finite. So we all recognize these words. We know what they mean. But do we know what they represent? These words represent a leader's promise to his constituency, to his people, to the people he serves. The leader is obviously Lord Krishna, as we know. And who are the people whom he serves? They are the people who follow the paths of righteousness, of dharma. And there is a finite group of people. It's not infinite because, because not everybody follows dharma or wants dharma to prevail. And therefore, this shows us that the essence of leadership is the service of a finite number of people, a finite constituency. So if you take, if you think of any great leader, you will be immediately able to identify who is their constituency. For example, whom did Julius Caesar serve? The people of Rome, right? What about Napoleon? The people of France. What about Abraham Lincoln? 
the United States, Atatürk. And uh, so it's immediately clear, isn't it? So what about this gentleman? Whom does he serve? Himself. Himself. <laughs> Whom does the Prime Minister of Pakistan serve? Does he serve the people or does he serve the army? And whom does the Pakistan army serve? <laughs> whom did this gentleman serve? <laughs> whom did Gandhi serve? Did he serve the people of India, the entire undivided population of India? Did he serve the Indian civilization? Did he or did he serve a subset of that population, the Hindus, Sikhs, etc.? Did he serve the Muslims or did he serve the British? So that's a question we need to ponder about. Now what about the good shepherd and his flock of sheep? Whom does the shepherd serve? See the shepherd ensures that his flock is well taken care of. It has the best grass to graze upon. He ensures that they have enough water to drink. He takes care of his flock's security. He keeps the big bad wolf away. He provides his flock with a safe, comfortable, secure place to stay at night. In other words, he dedicates his entire existence to the service of his flock. So he serves his flock, right? So whom does he serve? He serves himself. Because at the end of the day, he needs the sheep for food. He serves whoever owns the flock of sheep, right? He serves the sheep's owner, the flock's owner. So, this is not service, right? He is serving the person who owns the sheep. So the, so, the shepherd is not the sheep's leader. He is their prison guard. He is their slave driver. Isn't he? The sheep's owner, the sheep's owner is the shepherd's boss. And the sheep are the shepherd's subordinates. The shepherd's service extends upwards, not downwards. So, that is not leadership. That is merely providing service for a fee. The shepherd may look like a great leader and a great servant to his flock, but he is not. So appearances can deceive. Now, do we have any corporate project managers here? Nobody? Okay. So let's say we have a corporate project manager who, who, who manages, let's say, 20 people. Whom does she serve? She serves the company, right? She doesn't serve those people. She's just managing them. So that is not leadership. That is not leadership. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Were Gandhi's actions aligned with India's national interest? And what about Ataturk? Were his actions aligned with the national interest of Turkey? So once again, to answer these questions, we need to ask ourselves, what is the national interest? Is it some vague, arbitrary, undefinable concept? Or is it something that we can actually define in a more precise manner? So how about we define the national interest as ensuring the long-term security, prosperity, and territorial integrity of the nation and its people? So we can test that out by applying that definition to the nation of the sheep. So the sheep have a small nation a small territory within which they graze and live. The shepherd takes care of the long-term security of the sheep as well as that of their children and descendants. 
for the long term foreseeable future forever basically the shepherd also ensures that the sheep are well fed well watered and that they never have to do a day's work in their lives in other words the sheep are assured long term prosperity for themselves and for their descendants the shepherd also takes care of the sheep's territorial integrity no other predator or animal is allowed to intrude so we have a situation where the sheep's long term security is assured their long term prosperity is assured and their territorial integrity is also assured and yet they are nothing but slaves so these sheep are born into a world of illusion a world of apparent never ending comfort and security they live their entire lives under this illusion of security prosperity and comfort they see their friends and family taken away from time to time but they don't think much of it they trust the good shepherd so when is this beautiful illusion shattered when it's too late when they reach the slaughterhouse right so what was missing in our definition of the national interest it is self determination and cultural integrity you see the sheep don't have any self determination they just follow the shepherd's orders they're happy and they're comfortable and they enjoy having somebody to tell them what to do that's why they're enslaved and also the shepherd has imposed his own preferred culture and lifestyle upon the sheep it's a culture and lifestyle that's foreign to the sheep to their species they are not allowed to practice the, their natural indigenous culture and lifestyle which is roaming around and climbing hills and all that and the sheep are blissfully unaware of this they think that they live the way things ought to be so our improved definition of the national interest could be ensuring the long term security prosperity territorial integrity self determination and cultural integrity of a nation and its people so that's not a very bad definition and we can use this definition to answer that question which we asked earlier yes where gandhi's actions aligned with india's national interest based on that definition that we just saw and what about atatürk so there is something that we can think about and one more question what if instead of atatürk turkey had a leader who had gandhi's qualities and what if instead of gandhi india had a leader of atatürk's qualities would history have turned out differently thank you